0: You're listening to the BNH Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, BNH has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news and reviews, visit us at bNH.com or download the BNH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. Greetings and welcome to the BNH Photography Podcast. Sebastian Mayer is an award-winning photographer and filmmaker and a recipient of multiple grants from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. His editorial photographs have been published in Time magazine, Fortune magazine, the Sunday Times magazine, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times, among others. Mayer has made films for National Geographic, PBS NewsHour, Channel 4 News, CNN, and HBO. He also produces photo and video content for NGOs and charities such as UNICEF, UNFPA, and Mercy Corps. In 2009, Mayer co-founded Metrography, the first Iraqi photo agency and his first book Under Every Yard of Sky is published by Red Hook Editions and can be purchased from his website and we're going to be talking about the book and a lot of his amazing work uh in the next half hour. Or so Sebastian, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great having you here. John, I'm going to let you kick in. You got a list of questions here. Uh,
1: well, <laughs> well, let's just kind of step back a little bit to ask you how you got into photojournalism, uh, and what first brought you to Iraq. I know you mentioned that one of your first gigs was in England. Um, I'm assuming you studied here in the States? or Yeah, actually, I
2: didn't study photojournalism. I decided to become a French major in college. I had an interest, an amateur interest in photography when I was in college. And when I was studying in France, I met an American photographer who had a, a darkroom there. And I was used it to just, um, develop my black and white film. And she looked at it and she's like, uh, have you ever heard of photojournalism? I was like, no, nope, <laughs> no idea. What is, I mean, obviously as a, you know, I knew what a newspaper was, I knew what photographs were, but I didn't know that photojournalism was a thing or was a job or was, I just, they were just pictures and it didn't occur to me that it, somebody took them. So she gave me the Magnum degree book, and I was like, "Oh,
1: mm. really? Yeah, that's." It was like surprising. that was
2: it was yeah. the light bulb huh. over the head in the cartoon version of my life. And you were nineteen, I twenty. how old I was you? yeah, I was twenty yeah. years old. Okay. And right. it was just like,
1: "Oh, oh, oh, right! Uh, I need to do this."
2: And it was like, it, "I." It sounds almost cliche to make it that cut and dry, but it was that cut and dry. So then I I graduated, um, and moved back into my parents' apartment in New York, got an internship at Magnum Mm -hmm. um, and started uh, assisting photographers around New York. At the time, the New York Sun Mm -hmm. was a sort of Mm -hmm. up-and-coming, resurging newspaper kind of thing. And so I got to shoot for them. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, (laughs) wow, I shot there real estate section because mm-hmm. I was 22 years old sure. and had no experience.
1: Well, how'd you get the uh, internship at, at Magnum with? I literally just called them yeah. and was like, yeah. um, no, I just <laughs> heard of <laughs> <a> photojournalism. <laughs> and I hear like you guys to. do
2: photojournalism. <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 I Googled um,
2: photojournalism. <laughs> 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 and
0: it was you and those ice cream bars. So I missed, you must be the <laughs> journalism right. people. I mean, I was yeah. going to
2: go for the champagne, but um, <laughs> yeah. it's too expensive. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I got, I had an internship and again, look, I understand, I mean, I even understood at the time I was, you know, I was from New York, I could live in New York for free. And so I had an internship three days a week, had a job mm-hmm. the rest of the week. And like It's very hard, almost impossible for anyone to afford to do that. So I knew sure. that I was in a very, very lucky position to do that. And then I, as I said, I got work at the New York Sun. And then after about six months of that, I moved to England, which mm-hmm. was, you know, that was a... A lifestyle choice, right, as you'd right, call it. Right, I was right, dating right. an English girl. Right. I, my mom's English, so I had an English passport, so I didn't have to worry about any sort of visa working issues. And I moved to this to to Manchester in the north of England um, and started freelancing for their, uh, you know, their town newspaper, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a city newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, baptism by fire. The difference between British and American. Newspaper journalism is very striking American outside of, you know, the daily news and the post. We have this these grandiose ideas of the fourth estate and we're going to we are ethical and we're going to hold, you know, um, you know, truth to power and hold their feet to the fire and all that stuff. And in Britain, it's like journalism and and newspaper reporting is really about entertainment. And you got to do it shocking. You got to do it fast, even for regular, you know, non tabloid journalism um and so I would just. I had this tiny little car, a little Nissan Micra. Mm-hmm. I was on the wrong side of the road half the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no, you know, no GPS or anything. Like that. So I had like my little, my little A to Z on my lap. You know, flipping pages again, sure. driving on the sure, wrong side of the road. Sure, sure, sure. I was teaching myself standard transmission. I was a disaster, and I would like run <laughs> from job to job to job. I like mean, to hear we, the stories of the we, oh, good older thing texting, photographers there. It's a good thing texting uh, wasn't out then. They don't have I had, I had, a, I had a flip phone which had. I mean whatever it was before three g and I would take you know i go to uh you know an assignment you know local quick fast paced move you know fast moving uh local news assignments, take a couple pictures, edit on the laptop in my car, and then as I was driving to the next job, it would take so long to upload mm-hmm. that it would fifteen minutes twenty minutes half an hour as i would drive hopefully on the correct side of the road this time. <laughs> Um, it would take that long to upload the two or three pictures that needed to make it to the paper because it was an evening. It was an afternoon evening right, paper,
1: right, right. <laughs> so things had to move. What were further. you covering? I mean, what was uh, I mean, some of the stories? Everything. Yeah, you know everything from, from um, grocery store opening to yeah. You know, like you know, I, I somebody a couple had their dog
2: as their. Best man, and so I had. Oh no, there's a maid of that's honor. So they, they dressed yeah. the dog up in right. in a maid of honor outfit and went for a walk, and I yeah. shot that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That made national <laughs> news, believe it or not. So no, seriously, it was,
0: walking the maid of honor before the wedding. Yeah, that must be impressive. Yeah, <laughs> it was, I
2: think the title was uh, Walkies Down the Aisle. That was the name of the article. Uh, I did a story about the fact that the trains were delayed because there were wet leaves on the train tracks, and the name that title of that article was unbelievable.
1: <laughs> well, that's, but I mean. Other than good stories, uh-huh. a lot of this will lead you to where you go. Absolutely, but a simple point is that you know how do you visualize? How do you de- you know show uh, that story? You know, yeah. trains on the tracks, leaves on the tracks is not the most exciting thing, but you got to find a way to show it. Right? Absolutely,
2: it's a great and it was a great challenge, and there were great, great photographers uh-huh. who were who had and and I and I I'm not saying this for you know to be unnecessarily humble or even try to be funny, but these guys as local photographers are way more talented at, um, sort of graphic description than I'll ever be, right? Faced with an assignment like leaves on the tracks or whatever. These guys had imagination for, you know, it's not quite photojournalism. It's more descriptive. But for example, um, one of my favorite stories was this guy, Mark, who's, it was amazing. He had to do a, uh, photograph of a, um, it was an event coming to town a kung fu event and you just you how do you do you get do you do it do you get a bunch of guys to do a bunch of you know kung fu moves and then you just slow the shutter down so it blurs nicely like how do you do it so he took him out to the iconic square in Manchester where there are a lot of pigeons he got the guy to like get in a crouch put breadcrumbs all around him so all the pigeons were all over him and then the guy jumped out of his position into a kung fu stance and all the pigeons went up.
1: Right. Wow. There you go.
2: I totally (laughs) lack that ability to do it. And Mark would do that every day. I think
0: I know what the difference is. Okay, this is in Manchester. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think before they go out on assignment, they stop at the pub. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) That's where you get your creative input. Okay. And after that, Let's try
2: it. Absolutely. Yeah. Great <laughs> music. A lot of great music came out of Manchester, too. Sure. A lot of great, yeah, a lot. Yeah. And I mean, then that yeah. was, I covered a lot of music events. Yeah, soccer. you know, I mean, set, yeah, yeah, football. A um, lot of really random
1: mini football riots. Yeah. Like yeah. one guy versus a horse. <laughs> yeah. And so, that, had, that had to do with a pub. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I can imagine, yeah. But also, you know, your work seems to you know lend itself to the sequencing and the longer aspect as opposed to that one visual grab you mm-hmm. know and and they're both skills needless to say both talents so so jump us forward then to I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of steps in between but fast forward to uh, Iraq mm-hmm. and when you arrived and what was going on there sure
2: so to, to make the quick link so I'm doing all this newspaper work mm-hmm. in Manchester but the beginning of the story was I was given this magnum photo book. So my dream had always been to do big international stories to cover things that were not broken windows, cats stuck up in trees, that kind of thing. So after Manchester, I moved to London and was working, doing similar work, but for the national newspapers, um, you know, the wires. I was doing some some freelancing for Getty Images, and then I got this assignment in 2008 in, in Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, I n- had met a guy whose father was a documentary filmmaker who'd been covering the Kurds since the 70s. And he was working on a big multi- multimedia project um, about uh, the Kurds, their, their history, and in particular, Anfal, which was the 1988 genocide that uh, Saddam committed against the Kurds. So he was making a documentary but wanted stills to go along with, the, with both the documentary and the, and the online um, multimedia project. So that's, that was my first assignment. So I got there. And I'd done my research and, you know, I'd you know, read about the Kurds, about the Kurds of Iraq, what had happened. So I had research, but research can also be preconceived ideas. And I was asked to photograph something very specific, which was the survivors of this genocide, which I did. Um, but I was the more, you know, I was only there for six weeks. I had another two weeks on at the end. Um, but just from a journalistic and a photographic perspective, I was—I just bitten off way more than I could chew. There was way more going on. I had this idea that, you know, the Kurds, the Kurds were victims, and Saddam was the perpetrator, and that's totally true. But I didn't know that in the '90s the Kurds fought a civil war amongst themselves, so they were also perpetrators. Um, I didn't know. There was so much about Kurdistan I didn't know until I got there. And I didn't know when I got there either. It just raised tons of questions.
0: Um, the cultural dynamics of that part of the world are really complex because most of these countries were formed by people
2: who were never even
0: there. Absolutely. Or right. had no idea of the dynamics of the relationships between the cultures that had been there for thousands of years.
2: Absolutely. I mean, the, I mean, the fact that the Kurds are even part of Iraq is – just after the First World War, Britain and France mm-hmm. more or less just divided up that part of right. the world out of the crumbling Ottoman Empire. Probably and, in a pub, they did it also. <laughs> <But> I mean, <laughs> most likely. And look, look I mean, I, you know, funnily, enough, the, the, the Russians, you know, everyone talks about sykes Pico, but, you know, the Russians were part of it, but it was 1917. So, like, literally the Russian... Um, you know they the Russian problems. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah, well, that's what happened. He was, he was like, give me part... Oh, you know what, guys? Hold on. I got to go home? We got this... Bolshevik revolution going on. <laughs> hold on, I'll be back. Never, never came back. Hold my place. Yeah. Hold my spot. Yeah. And the Brits said, hold my beer. Watch this. And uh, they, uh, they took, you know, they took this Kurdish region because they, they colonially ran Baghdad and Basra, and they just stuck the Kurds on top and said, "We're calling this Iraq. We don't have a leader, so we're going to take the brother of the Jordanian king, and he's now king of Iraq, and that's it." And, and, that, and that was, you know, that was Gertrude Bell, um, British archaeologist slash spy, um, who just made this, again, like, as you said, colonially just drew a line in the sand and said, this is a wreck. Um, and, you know, the rest is not history. The rest what, is the One thing I want to
0: ask you, without, don't, don't lose your thought. Mm-hmm. Up to that point, you've been doing things that are relatively safe. Let's face it, mm-hmm. leaves, kittens, things that, you know, and, and yeah, I'm sure there were a couple of times when it got a little bit dicey it could have been rough, like you photograph soccer riots and mm-hmm. people die in those things. But now you go into a place where it's a whole different reality. How much trepidation? Were, were you a little, did, what kind of hesitance did you have when you were given this assignment? Did it hit you say, this is what I've been wanting to do? Oh,
2: shh. I wish the answer were that, that I had trepidation. I had the, um, the idiotic, I was going to call it machismo, but I'm just not a macho guy. <laughs> yeah. But like I just had like the idiocy of the an arrogant white guy who just wants to go off and do crazy adventures. Uh-huh. I was the opposite. I should have been more trepidatious, but I wasn't. Mm. Now, the flip side of that is the Kurdish region of Iraq was very safe. Right. Right. I started to push the limits very early on and go into unsafe areas um, in like literally in my spare time. like I you know – do the assignment and then I'd have a day or two off in that original trip in that original trip okay um, so you had a safe home base I had a very safe home base um and the kurds again and the kurds because of in the recent history and the relationship to america is that like they're very very welcoming to americans to europeans um, to journalists journalists played a really big part in um telling the world about what happened in 1988 and telling the kurdish mm-hmm, story so mm-hmm. they're very very uh a lot of respect, and a lot of time for, for journalists. It was on that assignment mm-hmm. in, in the fall of 2008 uh, that I met Kamran, who was okay. an Iraqi Kurdish photojournalist. He, the guy who I was working for had a F- Kurdish friend who had been his translator way back in the day, mm-hmm. and he was training up this young, very talented, ambitious Kurdish photojournalist. And he said, "Well, look, if you got this American guy going out and taking pictures, wasn't well, my my young guy come join him?" And yeah. Carmen and I met, and it was just like instantaneous kind of. It's like your first day of school, and you sit down at lunch, and you're like, "Oh, we're best friends," right. and <laughs> we yeah. we shared like two words in common, mm-hmm. but we both had laptops with photographs on them, <laughs> and like, what is. Two people who love photography need you. Just right. need photographs, right, and, right,
1: right, right. and so and we'll we'll follow up on this obviously because he's an important part of the book, yeah. and, and there's a story to go with that. So, uh, so you met him then, yeah. And and I'm assuming the assignment went okay. Mm-hmm. You, your curiosity grew. Yep. you went into areas that were outside of the the, the assignment. Uh, I guess take it from there. Yeah. So yeah. then, so that
2: so that assignment ended um, in basically November, December, two thousand eight and I went back to London where I was living and I was like, oh, that's right, financial crisis. Financial crisis hits Mm. newspapers, newspapers are failing. Who gets cut first from a failing newspaper? Photographers. So I called all my photo editors looking for work and they're like, Sebastian who, right? I mean, I was freelance when I left and so as the totem pole of freelancers, if you haven't been calling in for work every day, you just go slide down the pole. Um, so we're now in January of 2009 financial crisis and is now full swing. Um, and I was like, oh, this is not, this is not good. Um, and Cameron called me, I mean, we stayed in touch and he was like, look, I am thinking I'm running this local newspaper here in Kurdistan. It's a, it's a fortnightly newspaper, and or for a fortnightly magazine and i have to source all these photographs for of iraq for the for the newspaper magazine um but i'm struggling to find images i'm thinking of starting an agency of like a, a library of iraq images and i was like okay tell me more and he's like that's all i've got i was like <laughs> why don't we make a photo agency for iraqi photographers and he's like yeah let's do it That's like that's a great idea um, and it was really it was really his idea, and it it started off as as a as a library. We thought about doing stock images, and then slowly, well, actually not that slowly, very very quickly, we realized no, let's make it an agency where we train Iraqi photojournalists to work at the really the best because they had all this natural talent. But up until 2003, it had been a dictatorship. There was no history of journalism or photojournalism, so there was a lot of time that we had to make up. So. I moved there in basically the summer of 2009. Cameron had already rented an office. We had a pleather couch, an Mm -hmm, office mm -hmm. desk, a hot plate, and a spigot laptops, coming out of a yeah. wall, and that was it. <laughs> that's it, pretty and, much what we have. It. Did, so, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. so that's a second. It, it yeah. looks, this studio Did you have a bathroom? Because we don't. Yeah. No. We had. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about, I
1: mean, what about internet? And what was your communication yeah. system right. at that point? So, that, yeah. so at
2: that time, there were two hotels in the city, Suleimania, which again, is maybe a city no one's ever heard of, but it's a city of, at this point, almost a million and a half people. It's a sizable, sizable city for Iraq. Um, the second largest city in in the Kurdish region, Erbil is the capital. But there were two hotels that had Wi-Fi available. And so what we do is we would edit in the office and then walk or take a cab and go to that and then upload from there. We eventually got internet in the office, but it was slow. Electricity cuts. You were looking at maybe four to eight hours of government electricity, which means it it just comes on the grid and then you maybe get another four hours of uh local generator which you can't if you pay for it if you pay for yeah, it um and that is you know that's you can't really rely on that and you can't run anything more than a you know com- a laptop charger like the moment you turn on a fan or an air conditioner you know you don't have amps or anything it's you you're done um so i mean that was it i mean we were like a like a like a Silicon Valley startup without mm-hmm. the capacity, without Silicon, <laughs> without the Silicon, yeah. and without the capacity for massive economic growth. <laughs> there was no venture uh, do, capital do coming remember, our way. Do you remember yeah. the first photo you sold? That's a great question. Or um, I don't. Are you I, remember, major first steps that, I remember. I remember. I think the first the first story that we that we sold was a story about Kurdish smugglers on the Iran Iraq border. Hmm. Um, Kamran and I went to do the story together.
1: Well, you guys still—I mean, you guys are running the agency, but you were the two photographers of the agency at this right, point, right? Exactly. And,
2: and it was complicated for me because the whole point. So on that first trip, when I met Kamran, he introduced me to his Kurdish Iraqi photojournalist friends, and it was one of those moments. where I was like, "Oh, oh!" Again, like a light bulb moment. Oh, fuck these guys are taking, and not guys, these men and women are taking incredible pictures of Iraq that I'm not seeing. Everything I'd seen from Iraq since 2003 had been taken by American, European, South African, Japanese photographers. I'd barely seen anything from Iraqi photojournalists outside of wire pictures. You know, The AP, Reuters, AFP had mm-hmm. had great Iraqi photographers, but it was all breaking news. There was no in-depth magazine style photography being, being done by Iraqi photographers almost numb and so the this nuanced image of Iraq the story of Iraq wasn't being told by Iraqis and I saw these images that these guys were and men and women were taken I was like oh right we got to do something about this so when we started the agency it was a complicated for me to be to include my images in the agency's pictures cuz I'm an american so we're you know, we're presenting ourselves as an Iraqi photo agency, but I'm an American. So really my role was to be the agent, you know, the translator between Iraq and the American and European um, newspapers and magazines. Did Not to say anything? that I, I every once in a while I'd put my pictures in there if I had gotten access to something that you know the agency would benefit mm, from, mm. but in that case, I would the credit would only read Metrography. I wouldn't put my name gotcha. attached to it.
1: And did you get any specific um, blowback from people as you were the face or one of the faces of this agency and saying we want to do an Iraqi agency mm. and here I am talking about it?
2: Right. No, thankfully not. I think what I got was actually the opposite, which was, you know, you, you try to raise, you do your PR and your your marketing, and so I would approach. At that time, it's really funny that they don't exist. Anymore. There was a ton of photo blogs about a decade ago, and they just don't exist anymore. You know, New York Times, Lens Blog, there was... Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, like, Vice had a blog, NPR. I mean, they still sort of exist, but they were super popular back then. NPR had one. So I contacted all of them and said, you guys want to do a blog post about this Iraqi photo agency? And they're like, absolutely. And more often than not, not all of them, but more often than not, I, I was put up front and center as like, in the white savior category, which I really didn't want. But in Kamran and I talked about this, I was like, look, you go up front and you do it. And he's like, look, if your name and your Americanness is what is going to get the agency recognition, that's the most important thing. Um, later on, I as his English got better and better and better, um, I pushed him to be up front, instead He was also like devastatingly charismatic. So in person, he always was like, the, you know, the, the the band's front man. The guy. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and not that we need to timeline this, but um, uh, you're getting it up and running and uh, you're getting a, a crew of photographers around you that are shooting and you're developing stories with them, you're editing, you're talking about how to go long form, or... All of it. Oh, all of it.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> and sometimes we'd have to take... Uncom- I mean, everything that you just said, and sometimes we'd have to take uncomfortable back steps, which would be... Mm. You're great for I mean you're taking great pictures. You understand see, you know, no one understands sequencing really. But like you understand <laughs> you understand a long-form concept. It's more than a single image. You understand how to develop a story, but you don't actually know how your camera works. Mm-hmm. Like your camera's stuck on automatic. So let's teach you how to use your camera, which is always a very uncomfortable step to do with somebody who thinks they know sure. that mm-hmm. they who who says then, they're a photographer. Yeah, so yeah. those are always delicate conversations to have, but that's exactly what we were doing. Also doing things that, conversations that are still existing in, in all photojournalism today, which is ethics, mm-hmm. right? You know, there were people who were setting up shots that we had to, again, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. people, photographers did it at the Manchester Evening News, mm-hmm. that story I told about the pigeons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when is that acceptable? When is that unacceptable? What are we driving at? What's, you know, how much Photoshop can you do? These conversations were just never being had in Iraq because it was journalism and photojournalism was such a new concept. Um, and then the other thing too, which was always very uncomfortable, but had to be addressed all the time was money. You know, we understand in photojournalism community here that you go shoot a story on spec sometimes and you may or may not get paid for it. Telling Iraqi photographers, you go shoot a story and you may or may not get paid is not, that's not how things work there. So sometimes we knew we were onto a good story, but the guy or 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 lady wouldn't do the you know wouldn't shoot it unless it got paid, so we'd just front the money from the agency to pay for it, and then we would we'd mm. sell it afterwards mm. sometimes we would sometimes yeah. we wouldn't but, I have yeah. certainly not walked away from this agency a richer man yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's really how it should be anyway.
2: <laughs> Says you. yeah.
1: <laughs> you go start an agency in Iraq <laughs> as a photographer. Yeah, but for example, in that situation where a photographer wants to step away from the story because they don't feel they're being compensated or it's not worth their time because they got another job and they're doing, is there ever the conversation of, hey, this is a story that I know is going to get some traction. Let's send somebody else in there to do it. Or was it like, you know what, we want to respect this person's vision and their proprietary it was, know, hold on this?
2: That, that never came up. Um, mainly because people were – it was early enough that people were doing the stories that sort of they were the only ones that were able to do. Um, We didn't have people who were so good at that point where I'd be like, Mm -hmm. all right, look, Mm -hmm. you might have found that story, but you're lazy and you're garbage, so I'm sending in somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And and also, I mean, I know as a photographer, any editor did that to me. Mm Like, yeah, they, they better live in another city. <laughs> <laughs> and uh,
1: and also, what about the idea of having to get one or two almost breaking news or great one, one-off images to make a big sale or to get the name of the agency out there? Were you looking for that shot too?
2: We, we were for a very short sure, – in terms of breaking news, we tried that for like a hot second. Mm-hmm. And then we realized that we, we cannot compete with right. the wires. The wires are set up to do that. The wires have the money to do that. And there's no need – you know, in terms of the market that you know the, Iraq didn't need more wire agencies working um in terms of what we needed to do is we needed to get deeper access to great stories that no one else was thinking of and developing them as stories um like for example our, our photographer ali um met this uh this soldier Hussein, who had lost his leg uh an Iraqi soldier who lost his leg in a in a bomb in Fallujah. And he just stayed with Hussein. And he, you know, Hussein didn't have any, was getting very little um money from the military in terms of compensation, not even enough to get a prosthetic leg. And so Ali started to tell the story and we published elements of it. It made it into the Iraqi media. People donated money, he got a leg, you know, prosthetic leg. He then was able to get married because his would-be father-in-law said, without a leg, you can't marry my daughter. You know, had a family, you know, had kids. And so Ali tracked this whole story. And then at the end, we had this great, long, you know, great big story. And that, we, we were able to sell that as a really powerful story.
1: And you were saying you sold them to Iraqi media, where most of, most of the publishers in, in local or in Iraqi media? or we,
2: we thought at some point that would work, but it, it the, the finances of it didn't work. They paid so little per image that right. the, us, there was no... The agency couldn't take a cut because the photographer would end up with you know virtually zero. Right. Um, and so as an agency, spending money to get stuff into local papers that we wouldn't be able to capitalize on wasn't worth right. our time. Um, and the understanding of copyright law and just ripping stuff off the internet and sticking it in your newspaper. it's a whole other yeah, we, yeah, we story. Really, yeah. We would have liked to have had a much better uh, you know interaction and relationship with the Iraqi newspapers. But... It just, uh, it wasn't, it doesn't work, unfortunately.
1: Mm. What about the idea of, you know, uh, a free press? I don't know what the, what the press is like in Iraq, uh, the local press anyway, but, uh, how, how much, you know, government censorship is there?
2: It's not so much government censorship as, I mean, although that exists is that every political party Mm. has has their their own own paper. paper. And so that's what you have. And so it just, it becomes, everything is a tribal clan political party division, Mm. um, there are a couple independent media outlets, but those are then owned by businessmen who have I'll their own... with somebody. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone's got an agenda. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. American media 100 years thing. ago
1: was the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, is and maybe returning to may, Maybe again. going yeah. back there. Yeah. Um, so at this point... We are in about what year? Just when we can roll out after that. We're talking about you're we're up here, and running. We're, probably, and we're, we're up and running, and, and really when things start
2: to change, like we, we get that, that PR bump, like mm. those photo blogs come out, and things really start to change is 2012. 2012 okay. is like things are – we get invited to uh, the Tbilisi Photo Festival, mm. which is a big photo festival mm. in Georgia, mm. the country. Um, we are now going to Perpignan. Uh, the, the photojournalism festival in France. We're mm-hmm. getting visas for our photographers to mm-hmm. travel outside of Iraq. Um, we are a known quantity. Our photographers are getting known. The editors of Time magazine mm-hmm. know us. We have pictures published in Der Spiegel, Washington Post, Times of
1: London. Right. Like you're are, living there full-time, living there working full-time. day in, day out as yep. your job at the agency yep. and shooting at the same time? Shooting at the same time because I certainly, mean, certainly I
2: didn't, the agency made just enough money to pay rent and pay bills. Right. Um, neither Kamran nor I made any In fact, we lost money. We put money into it because it was an amazing mm-hmm. project. Um, so I had to support myself through, you know, through photojournalism and, and commercial work Simons. that was out there. Outside of the agency. Outside of the agency. Yeah. Yeah. But all, all the time
1: living there. All not, the time not I, travel, I mean, maybe yeah. certain travel. I mean, but not... And
2: I also, you know, in terms of my own work, I, as a photojournalist, there's only so much work i could get inside of kurdistan and even right. inside iraq i was traveling around iraq proper going to baghdad and fallujah and mm-hmm. mosul and mm-hmm. different places but in 2011 i went to libya and covered the you know the civil war there right. in 2000 you know for 2 3 months in 2011 uh, went to Romania to shoot video for National Geographic. Went, you know, I went to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. You know, I was you know doing assignments around the world. Taking assignments Afghanistan. in Afghanistan. Right,
0: yeah. right. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We come back more with Sebastian Mayer, and we're going to start talking about his book, Under Every Yard of Sky. Stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the BH Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For links to gear and more information on today's guests, check out the show notes in your podcast app or visit our homepage on the BH Explorer website and join the BH Photography Podcast Facebook group. And now, back to the show. All right. We are back. Uh, before we start talking about your book and a bunch of other things here, uh, one question I did have is that you, again, you had this thing in your head where you became, you got into photography and being a photojournalist was a goal. Okay. You, you see Magnum books and you're working with Magnum and everything else, And then you actually get to go to one of these places that is on the other side of the planet. Um, how different, or what was the biggest surprise to you as, as far as your perceptions and your realities? What was the most jolting thing to you?
2: The most jolting thing to me was how unjolting it was in the sense that I had this idea of looking at all this photojournalism from Magnum right, um, and National Geographic stuff and Time Magazine stuff that the world of out there, whatever there was, was mm-hmm was crazy and different and full of headscarves and and headdresses and war and poverty and all this stuff. And I got to Kurdistan in two thousand eight and like the market was full of like knockoff iPhones and there were malls and there were like just pizza pizzeria's not very good pizza. But, you it's know, just the, like it's like around here, actually, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're the describing Herald Square. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> okay. Um, but in in all honesty, I think that was that was the biggest shock, and we can st- I can start talking about how I got interested in doing this book. The idea came out within the first year or two that I had was re- was working in Kurdistan was the fact that I had this idea of you know I'd done my research. The Kurds were victims of a genocide. Uh, there was there was tribalism. There was um 95% of kurdish villages were destroyed so there's this mass uh rural exodus to cities that was forced forced migration and i got there and all of that history was true a lot of the 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 problems were still ongoing but they were still building highways and they were still building apartment buildings and there were english language schools and there life were goes on. life goes on mm-hmm. and it's not the world is not as different as one of the what i realized after a little bit of time of doing you know war reporting or conflict yeah. reporting was that an unintended byproduct an unintended consequence of war photography for lack of a better expression is war photography paints a portrait of victims and perpetrators
0: mm-hmm. and
2: very little if anything in between And so when I got to Kurdistan, I was like, "All right, here are the victims. Who are the perpetrators?" And I was like, "Oh, like there are traffic jams and people with, you know, medical problems and like people who are just not very nice people, (laughs) right?" And
1: and Curtis jerks and Curtis nice guys, right? Right. It's like I mean, it's just
2: like walking around anywhere in the world. And I think of one of the things that photography and photojournalism. In the past, has had a tendency to do is to highlight our differences. What looks odd and different and weird. And in fact, what I wanted to do with this book was to paint a more what I think is as a more realistic picture. And you'll find in the book, yeah, some extreme things. There's some extreme elements of war which we don't see in America. Mm-hmm. We, you know, blood and suicide bomb attacks and stuff like that. But there's also supermarket shelves and guys on cell phones and, you know, immigrant labor. I mean, what, right? I thought Iraq and Kurds, oh, they're so, they're victims, they're poor. Well, actually, the Kurds, by the time I got there in 2008, there was so much wealth that was being accumulated that Bangladeshi, Ethiopian, uh, Nepali, Indian migrant workers were being shipped in to do the work that the Kurds could afford not to do anymore. Hmm migrant yeah. labor is an American
1: issue, I yeah, thought, yeah, but no, it's a yeah. world issue. So you're getting over there and you're having this realization of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is not what you expected. And, and is the, the photos that you take and ultimately the book that you make a product of you learning this and, and, and realizing that, wait, this is not the, yep. what, what is going on. It's not journalism. And, and what kind of process was that for you to kind of embrace the idea of doing this and, and shying away from the photojournalistic aspect of it?
2: I mean, so to be clear it before we sat before we sat down and turn you know press record you'd ask me about the relationship between photojournalism documentary photography what's the difference and you know do you do one or the other do you separate do, For me the I uh, defining terms is is complicated because I don't know how to do it but if you think of f- for for clarity. Photojournalism, let's just say it's what I do for newspapers and magazines and documentary photography is what this book is. For me, I hold both in my hands, right? Like I have, I've I've got to do something that makes money. And this book is a labor of love. It's not a labor of financial brilliance. Um, And photojournalism might not be the best way to make money, but it is a way to make money, right? Um, And so I, and, and the approach that you, that I take as a, as a photojournalist is um much more specific, you know you really nail down a very specific topic, a very specific story um and you go very deep, you know, on a very narrow issue. Um and then this book is the opposite. I go very deep, but on a much wider, right. wider issue. And I can hold both. If you will, both in, at, at the same time, that's
1: my mm-hmm. question exactly. Can you do both at the same time? Sure. And and were you doing both at the same time? Mm-hmm. Let's say you're on an assignment and you see a shot over here that speaks to the documentary aspect. You're able to do both. Put this one aside and get to it later. Absolutely. When you're publishing yeah. It. yeah. I mean, I
2: remember mm-hmm. this was years ago, like 2007. Uh, I was covering the, uh, uh, I think it was the prime minister or the. the Parliamentary elections in Pakistan after Benazir Bhutto was killed. And I was there, and there was a British photographer, a good friend of mine, Justin, who was there. And he's, and I was just like sort of torn because I was like, holy shit, I'm in Pakistan. There's like color and it's alive. But I was really, really focused, and my editors really wanted stuff just election focused. Mm -hmm. And Justin said, You've got the pictures you take for the paper, and then you've got your pictures. Mm -hmm. And that really, that. He told me that a year before I even went to Kurdistan in the first place, and that has stuck with me for the last, you know, fifteen years. Which is, yeah, I've got you've. Even when you're on assignment, you can see things that are super important. Mm -hmm. You might not even know what you're going to do with them further down the road. But you've got to remain, even when you're on assignment, like open to all possibilities, mm-hmm. even if your editor just doesn't want to see
1: it. Sure, sure. And what about, though, your mindset and your ability to focus on – I mean, d- does it tear you away or is, do you think it even helps? You That's know, a even, good even, question. You know, I don't know. I think I th- – context, th- anyway.
2: Certainly – when you've got the fear of your editor hanging over you always, if you have to choose between getting a you know right. a, a shot that is interesting versus the shot that your editor wants, you always go for what your editor wants because mm. yeah, it's what you're paid sure. to be there for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's usually enough time in any assignment to get plenty of stuff that you're interested in just on your own. Mm. Um, and
1: how do you relate with other photojournalists that might be not at all interested in the documentary side or, or just kind of they drop in for coverage and, and then are back out a week later? Did you? I mean, I'm sure some are good and some are jerks and all that other stuff. But, uh, <laughs> but did you ultimately, especially after working and starting an agency, uh-huh. tend to uh, get uh, frustrated or impatient? I think no. I mean, not not really. I I if. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the, the, the real honest answer is there's so there's so little work for photojournalists that if somebody parachutes in and does an assignment, I'm just jealous of their assignment. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, you
0: cover them as the assignment. Is.
2: <laughs> <laughs> which, which, you know, um, I mean, for example, a lot of a lot of photographers came in after 2014 to cover the war with ISIS at that time. And we're going to get to this story. I had stopped working because I was consumed with another much more serious issue Um and at the very first stages, I, because I'd spent so many years working as a photojournalist, my instinct was always to do photojournalism, and I was caught up in a in a kidnap crisis, hostage crisis that I, I needed to focus on entirely. So when I saw my friends and colleagues coming in to do assignments, I was a little bit envious. I was like, I would rather not be dealing with an ISIS hostage crisis. I'd rather be working. Um, but no, no real actual hard feelings. Um, There are photographers who are young and naive, because I was young and naive, who parachute in, or don't even parachute, just come in thinking that they're going to, you know, tell the story, Um, and they have that two-dimensional view that I had when I started. Maybe five years ago, I would have been more judgmental, a little bit in my head, meaner to them. But I'm a little bit older now, and I know that they're young, or mm-hmm. certainly not an age in terms of mindset. And they're going to grow out of that, mm-hmm. um, and everybody does
1: eventually. So before we get into what you know, what we really want to talk about, and this is great, don't get me wrong, but you know about the book uh-huh. and and the story that you're hinting at here. Um, let me just throw out a couple of gear questions, and I know it's total yeah, it's <laughs> totally left field, left field here. But uh, what were you shooting with? And specifically, talk a little bit about the environment that you're shooting at, keeping cameras up and running. Uh, if you're, you know, you need new gear, you have a breakdown, mm-hmm. how'd you handle that? And anything specifically regarding that? because um, also, you know, we haven't talked about it much, but you do motion work too yep. and, and video. So, so uh, yeah. So I started in
2: 2008. So I was I come out of a really fast paced uh, newspaper environment. So I had a. N- this is going to make me sound dated, but mm-hmm. I am I'm an old yeah, man now, yeah. so it's okay. Uh, I shot with a Nikon D2X, which uh-huh. was one of those big. I don't even know what they're called, yeah. but it was a DSLR that had had the built in side grip, yeah. so I could just. I like, just had one on the table here. D6, the new, the latest one. Gotcha. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah, an APS H. Yeah. A-P-S-H
0: yeah. Um, sensor. Like I think so. One, yeah, yeah. One, thir- one third. Th- exactly. Yeah.
2: So garbage in low light, um, and I had two of them, and I had one. Sort of wide angle zoom, and then I had one telephoto zoom. You know, was you know whatever, tools was, the trade. Like Fourteen to, yeah, yeah. to, and it wasn't even
0: real wide angle. <laughs> no, I mean with a with a, you
2: know with a one third frame, everything yeah, was. Yeah. But anyway, so so that's what I went on my first assignment with, and I also the the color palette of Nikon back then was really like muddy and warm, and I just yeah, everyone I think I had seven colors, I think. <laughs> it was yeah. it, it was, was about seven or eight colors. It was it. just not, and I was yeah. at the, it was at that moment that the first Canon five D mm-hmm. had come out, and everybody in the industry had the 5D mm. and everyone also had that really sexy 35 millimeter 1.4 <laughs> lens and I was like, oh, everyone's pictures are beautiful and the colors are amazing and my is you know, it's, my, it's garbage and of course it's not the tools, it's the tradesmen but I blamed it on the tools mm-hmm. so I sold my gear and got a
1: 5D. (laughs) Okay. Which ultimately maybe led to some video work and... Well, that's exactly what. So I got, I had a
2: 5D, the first generation, which didn't have video. So I had that for about a year and then I got a Mark II and then everyone went DSLR nuts and I started, you know, and I was like, look, I guess I make video now. Um, not knowing anything about frame rate, not knowing anything right. about right, right, right.
1: nobody know, did back then. Nobody, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would
2: hate to look at the footage again; it would be <laughs> skin crawlingly <laughs> bad. Right, but, um,
1: you know, flash forward, you made some incredibly great video pieces too along Yes,
2: thanks to some very talented editors. <laughs> <laughs> great. Uh, but yeah, so so then that was the transition. I mean, in, in pure gear form, it yeah. was Nikon. And when people ask me now, because when you are a professional photographer. Amateurs always ask you what do you recommend? I'm so out of and this is I apologize to all BNH listeners because I uh am not a gearhead. Um everyone in all of my colleagues are shooting with all this amazing new equipment, you know, Sony's now in amazing mm-hmm. and I'm still just on another generation of the Canon 5D. Mm-hmm. Um and in fact just got back from a big assignment for Fortune magazine. And was still shooting video mm-hmm. with a 5D Mark III, mm-hmm. um, and it's great. I yeah. mean, the, the 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 quality is amazing. Um, but yeah, that's that's what mm-hmm. I shoot with. In terms, of what was great about the change, every new uh, iteration of Canon was that Sorry. certainly on the photography side, batteries last forever. So I don't need, you know, electricity cuts are constant or were constant yeah. when I was living yeah. there. Unless I was shooting video, I was fine in terms of batteries. I was fine in terms of, you know, card. Mm -hmm. You know, you just get a big, Mm -hmm. you know, CF card and you're fine. That was never an issue. I'm also uh, fastidious in keeping all of my equipment clean. Mm -hmm. Like my laptop is 10 years old and Mm -hmm. looks brand new just because I'm a... Neurotic cleaner of laptops, but but over there, you know, on assignment
1: and 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 you know, in field and dirt and dust and rain and everything, keeping everything clean. Yeah, working. What about uh, transmitting images? What were you using back then? And and, that's a great question
2: because that has changed. I mean, that if I mean, it's changed so much in the first, you know, the first five years I was there, and then in the you know the next five years after that. Mm -hmm. So when I got there, really, if you needed to upload anything from. The Kurdistan region, which was again m- safer and therefore more developed than the rest of Iraq for the most part, um, you could just use Wi-Fi in a hotel; would be fine. But if you were doing news and you need to move quickly, yeah. then you needed a B-GAN. You mm-hmm. Needed, a, you know, to, to upload, which are expensive mm-hmm. to buy, the expensive to use. As a freelancer, just was not. Right. We weren't able to do it. We eventually, once we got known, we got sponsored by Thraya for a year. The we're their big uh, satellite data company. Okay, so mm-hmm. they're okay. So they gave us uh, that. You know, they gave us a BGAN mm-hmm. and sponsored us mm-hmm. for a year, um, which was yeah. great. But by the time all the product of hustle and work and all, getting these things too, right? I precisely. Mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and but yeah. So anyway, so that that's how we were uploading stuff. Um, but we weren't doing a ton of news, so mm-hmm. we we were okay to just be there at three o'clock in the morning in a hotel lobby (laughs) and 900th cup of tea that day, just like working away. All right.
1: Um, so, and then now, obviously, with cell phones, it's a totally different story. Right, right, right. And uh, May, I'll just throw this in before we kind of dive in deeper into in the story of the book uh, that you know your your work is not just isolated to Kurdistan or the conflict zones of the world. I mean, you've done some really great work recently in the states and the the series on Keshtak in Ohio after the election and and other related work. So you know, Thanks. take a look at the website and uh, you know. Let's not pigeonhole anybody, you know. <laughs> so anyway, but uh, let's get back to you know your the agency your, and and Cameron and your relationship with him, uh, the story that I, uh, you're going to share us with, and the book, which is kind of uh, the narrative of that uh, photographically and with the text. Sure. So. Yeah. so- I think we left off in 2012, right? Mm-hmm. Things were on the up and up. Yeah. I mean,
2: everything was going great. The agency was doing amazing. We were getting published in all these American and European, even Japanese uh, media. We get invited to photo festivals. We're going to photojournalism, you know, events where editors are, we're meeting editors and becoming good friends with them, not mm-hmm. just, you know, not just on an email basis. Um, same 2013. And then 2014, ISIS sort of mushrooms up Mm-hmm. They you know been in Syria. They crossed the border into Iraq, but also come up organically. How in Iraq. Much,
1: How aware of of this growth were you as someone living there? Or <laughs> it's so embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> you would think that you
2: know I'd be like, oh yeah, I I knew and I told everybody, right. and no one would listen <laughs> to me. No, I, I was I was as surprised as everybody. Yeah. It was I'm when ISIS took Mosul on June tenth, two thousand fourteen. I was, it was just like, what the fuck? What's f- going on? What the fuck? All I mean, right. I had, I had covered Syria at that point. So I, you know, knew I, there was a, I was good friends with an Iraqi cameraman who was kidnapped and executed mm-hmm. in Syria. So I was aware of that level of, of, of violence that ISIS, but mm-hmm. ISIS was a Syrian thing. Mm-hmm. Again, I knew that they had started in Iraq. It was called ISI, the Iraqi, Islamic State of of, mm-hmm. of Iraq. Um, and I'd known of them since 2010 that i hadn't realized what had been going on under the surface the whole time. Okay. I did not mm-hmm. have a, a you know a finger on the pulse of that. Right. So June 10th 2014, mm-hmm. Isis takes Mosul. I jump in the car with a friend of mine Eunice, who's one of the metrography photographers and we we just drove to Mosul that day. No, the day after, the 11th. It was unbelievable. You could just do that. Mm-hmm. Back then, the Peshmerga, the Kurdish military, still controlled the road to Mosul. So we drove to the outskirts, and even we were pushing really hard to get inside the city because we didn't, at that time, we thought we could, we could, as journalists, we could control the situation. Mm-hmm. And the Peshmerga, like, you guys are definitely not going inside the city. Right, right. But we pushed, pushed, pushed. And that day I did, you know, called in to the BBC. To, you know, like I was doing all these these news, breaking news phone calls. Um, and then the 11th, and so I was doing my own reporting, Kamran was back in, so I was in the western part of the Iraqi Kurdish region, so Erbil to Mosul, and Kamran was in the eastern part, and he was running the agency, and we were sort of in touch, and, and, and I had at that point, the agency was doing so well that I had stepped back from the daily running of it. Kamran's English was great, and he, you know, he was able to just navigate the agency really well without me. So June 11th, I go and I do another story, June 12th, I actually see Cameron that morning. We all hang out, have a good laugh, and then we go off and do our own thing. And then that afternoon of June 12th, I get a phone call coming back from shooting a story. I'm just heading home to to file that cameron has been killed. And I was like, what the fuck? Right? And it's one of those things that's super shocking. And when you hear something like that, that is so shocking and so drastic, you just assume that they got it wrong, right? Like rumors happen really, really fast, especially with, you know, with with um, cell phones and smartphones now. So it's like, oh, somebody just got it wrong and it's just spreading like wildfire because people are on edge because of ISIS and just every bit of news just goes crazy now. So I was like, I don't believe that. So I start calling around and Eunice starts calling around and it's like we're understanding it's actually true. And I just seen them that morning. So I was like, fuck, you got like the, the most dangerous thing in any country in car car accidents. Even in a war, car accidents are way more dangerous than anything. So I just assumed in a terrible comment, has been a horrible car accident and it was just awful. But actually as I found out, because I didn't know, he had he had gone back to the agency to just run operations from there. And on the way back, the head of the Peshmerga ministry called him and said, look, we're doing a counteroffensive against ISIS just south of the city of Kirkuk. Do you want to come cover it? And, you know, Cameron was a, was a manager of the agency at that point, but he's got photojournalism in his, in his blood. blood right? He's yeah. not going to, you know, yeah, the story. Gonna, you know. yeah. So yeah. he he went into that, and while he was on the front lines covering, he got shot in the neck, and he died. So I didn't obviously didn't file at my. I just called my editor. So I can't file. Was, you know, my friend just got killed, um, and so I headed straight back to Sulaimani, which is about like a three hour drive from where I was. I got there at night, and the agency, the courtyard of the agency, was just full of. You know, friends, family, everyone was there and you know, crying. It was awful. So I met with his brother. His older brothers were there. His younger brother was there. And we said, okay, tomorrow, first thing, daybreak, we'll drive to Kirkuk and figure out how to get his body off the battlefield because the Kurds had actually been pushed back from their position. So it was a no man's land that ISIS had actually sort of won. So it was going to be complicated. But we, we knew that through tribal relations, we could we could get his body back. And so daybreak, we drive to Cook, we're standing around, and we're just, you know, calling the local police officers who will just help figure out how to get there. And, it's, you know, it's June in Iraq, it's getting, gets hot at like 7 a.m., like sweaty hot. And then out of nowhere, Burwa, who's Kamran's best friend from childhood, his phone rings, and it's Kamran. Um, Kamran hadn't, he'd been shot in the neck, but he hadn't died. Kurdish Peshmerga, the commander, had thought he'd died because there was so much blood, and he'd left them on the battlefield because they were coming under such heavy attack from ISIS. They had to beat this crazy, hasty retreat. Um, and Comrade had been left there, and ISIS had gone out the battlefield, seen that he was still alive and had taken him prisoner. So he was calling from his captor's phones. So I was just, I mean, it was just like this moment where, you know, you're in, you're in total shock that your friend's dead or your brother's dead, And then all of a sudden, they come back to life. Um, Again, we didn't get into this, but Kamran was such a terribly charismatic person Mm. that the idea that he could talk his way out of death was right. like, you know, <laughs> right. it was kind right. of like right. if there's Nobody one person quite who, sure what is going on, right? right. If there's right. one person who could who could yeah. cheat death and come back to life, it was him, and uh-huh. which he did. Uh-huh. Um, but then, as soon as that relief, that incredible joy of holy shit, he's not dead. This is amazing. This is amazing. This is amazing. You just suddenly goes, oh no, but he's an ISIS captive. And at that point, you know, uh, we know what happened to Jim Foley. I had a, uh, as I said, an, a friend of mine who was a cameraman who had been executed by ISIS. Like, ISIS being a an ISIS hostage was was very very scary, very dangerous. But so we I anyway mean, we we drove immediately to the commander of the Kurdish forces and said, "Look, Kamaran's alive." He said, "No, he's not." We said, "We the Birwa, he he had an app on his phone that recorded the phone calls, so we actually had a recording of Kamaran's." Voice and the and of the kidnappers themselves, they'd taken the phone. So he's like, "Oh right." So he gets on the phone with them, and they start to try to do a hostage negotiation. Mm. But this guy has been a Peshmerga a Kurdish fighter for his entire life. He has doesn't quite have the subtlety needed for hostage <laughs> negotiation, and it was oh, it yeah it went really bad, really really quickly. Um, and they just end up yelling at each other and threatening each other and. You know, hanging up the phone and calling back and threatening, and it was just that was it. So we just drove straight back to the also office, indicating
1: that they that this person did they weren't aware who he was necessarily, or they knew he was a journalist, okay, um, and they knew he was Kurdish, but that didn't necessarily. But when the commander was calling and and screaming for his freedom, they mm-hmm. realize they have somebody that is a little more, more worthwhile, right? More, and so
2: more. we had to be super careful at yeah. that point because Kamran was a you know he was he was a known photographer in the West, Mm. um, that we had to do an immediate media blackout, right? Because a, so at that point, AFP had announced his death time magazine had, or time.com, uh, ran a story about his death, um, already. And we're like, Oh shit. If the American media is publishing his name, ISIS was incredibly competent and very fast moving on the internet. One Google, Kamran's known as a photographer outside of Iraq, right? Like he, maybe he's worth something more. So we had to do this very aggressive media blackout, which took way longer than it should have. Um, But we we got that on lockdown, and then we started, you know, working for his, you know, working for his
1: release. Mm -hmm. Sorry to jump back. And the the blackout is just a matter of making phone calls to editors and saying, hey, we have this situation. We don't know what's going on. He's a journalist let's keep this story out.
2: Yeah. And it was complicated because, so time, time ran this story Mm -hmm. about him, you know, you know, Iraqi photojournalist, Kamran Najem killed and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're like, all right, delete it. And the guy who wrote the article said, I can't, you know, I'm I'm not the editor. I can't delete it. So I go to his editor. He's like, I'm not going to delete it because it, I'm not responsible. It goes up and up, and, and this takes mm. this is taking like minutes, which feel like out, which feel like days, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And then it went all the way up from him as the as the writer, all the way up to basically the VP of of Time at mm. that point. And they and they were saying. It's unethical for us to delete an article. Like we'll run a correction that he's not dead, that he's kidnapped. And mm-hmm. I was like, you guys are missing the fucking point. Right. Any mention of him is putting his life in danger. And they're like, well, I'm sorry, journalistic ethics. And yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm yeah. gonna <laughs> stick those journalistic ethics where the sun don't shine. Yeah. It took them something like three days to uh, uh, three days to uh, to take the article down. No joke. And I, I, you know, fast forward, Kamran is still missing since 2014. Um, and we, after 2017, we presume that he he died in the early days of captivity. But I cannot tell you for sure that that article in Time wasn't somehow responsible for what happened to him. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. You
0: can't prove it, but
2: it I can't, could very well be. I can't rule it out. But there you were, know. after
1: that immediate back and forth, there was almost no communication. There was no idea what was going on with him. And so so yeah, that? so our only...
2: So what what you want to do in a hostage situation is you need to get proof of life. So we had proof of life from the phone call, but then we you know were like okay so where is he you know where is he being held and all that kind of stuff we need, um, and then obviously you need to f- get in contact with the captors to see what their, they want. What what do they want? Yeah. And unlike a let's say a Somali pirate situation where they're going to kidnap you, they want money. That's that's what they want. Mm-hmm. ISIS. They, either, they Maybe they want to kill you in a really extravagant way, videotape it, and use it for propaganda. Maybe they're just going to hold on to you in total silence and use you as a bargaining chip 10 line. months, 10 yeah. years down the line. You don't know. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. what we were trying to do immediately was to get back in touch with the captors. But that phone number that they'd call from, phone was off yeah. and never turned back on again. Um, so how do you get to them? And so we started working every single angle we because Qamran was, was such a sort of big personality, he knew top lots of people and lots of very powerful people. So we were able to contact uh, members of the Iraqi elite, who, some of them who've been in the Saddam government, who are now living in exile mm-hmm. in Jordan, in Beirut, and people who were Baathists back in the day, probably had ties to ISIS. We were able to you know, back channel to them. Mm-hmm. We used his family through uh, a whole, you know, complex system of tribal law to backtrack. You know, to back channel to ISIS themselves. We were never, ever, ever able to contact a, you know, a jailer, a captor, anyone who took responsibility, and we never got another proof of life. But this went on. I mean, I'm really condensing time right, here. Here's, this. Yeah how how long how, that's, how long was it? So I mean, how long, it's still theoretically still going it, on. You don't know that he's actually dead for sure, do you? No. Okay. No. Right, no. Right, no. he's right. no. presumed dead. I mean, again, we. So this I mean, in terms of intensity, 2000. I mean, June 13th, June 12th, he shot. June 13th, the morning, five, six o'clock in the morning is when we find out he's alive. And then all of June, we're having like, you know, 18, 22 hour days, just like, you know, and I'm, so everyone had, you know, there was a small group of us working and everyone had this different role. My role as an American, I couldn't show my face. Me associating with Kamran was really dangerous for him. Mm -hmm. So I was this silent center. So I was the the center and the note taker, right? Mm-hmm. Any intel came to me and was logged. So I have this crazy spreadsheet and log of everything. Then his family, his brothers had their specific roles. And then the, he had journalist friends with these amazing contacts in ISIS held territory. So we were working those. We had contacts in the Kurdish secret yeah. service who were working those angles. Right. So like, if anybody had,
1: you know, an opportunity to find him and talk to him, right. the, the resources and the people were available Right, it just wasn't happening. It
2: wasn't happening. And, and, and there's a whole second, second story, which is in any situation, like a, any hostage situation, which is so stressful, um, it is very hard, near impossible, to keep everybody working together, mm. and and relationship broke down very, very quickly. His family felt that they should be in control of everything, mm-hmm. but they didn't have the wherewithal or the contacts that his journalist friends or his uh, right. government friends had. Right. Um, and it was just a whole. It's a whole yeah, mess. I'm um, so sorry. Yeah, and
1: yeah, and a friend. Yeah. yeah, a great friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, All so right. yeah.
2: So I mean that that's that's the story. And so in in terms of the book, mm-hmm. um, I decided to have the book be the story of modern Iraqi Kurdistan. But inside of it is this mm-hmm. essay, which is printed on different paper right. and and styled differently, which is a standalone essay mm-hmm. of the story of what happened, of right. my friendship to Kamran right. and, and
1: right. what happened to him. And as a... In terms of the design and the make of the book, was that always part of it? Was it was always an idea to insert this in the middle and uh, and have it done, you know, the images are in black and white, there's text in two languages. Um, was that there at the beginning of the idea of the book? Or well,
2: the beginning of the idea of the book started in about 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. I'd gone to Kurdistan with that, you know, two-dimensional idea, right? You know, victims, perpetrators, right? That's as simple as that. And I was like, oh, wait, no, there's way more going on here. I'm going to start to work on a book. So I was working on the book in 2014 when ISIS showed up, and then I stopped working all of 2014. I just I couldn't work. I was you know I was working 18, 20 hours a day trying to trying to get Kamran released, trying to find Kamran. And then in 2015, after a year, like 12 months of not working, I you know I needed to. I need to make money. I need to go back to work. So I started to work, go back to work as a photojournalist, but also started to go back to work on the book mm-hmm. at the same time. And, and still but taking images at that point or taking just images, editing, yeah. yeah. So okay. the the images, I took images all the way up through 2017. So mm-hmm. 15, 16, 17. Um, and but my you know, my approach and my understanding and my concept of the book actually changed because I'd done this, Kurdistan is not just this area of war, it's an area of love and family and and prosperity and, and all these other, you know, women's rights issues and all these other things. And then I returned to working in Kurdistan and now I had been directly affected by war in a way that was incredibly personal, non-journalistic. And I also... Kurdistan had changed. Kurdistan was at war. Um, People were dying. People's fathers were being killed. People's brothers were being killed Mm -hmm. and being kidnapped. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. my perspective of Kurdistan changed. So the book changed. When it came to answer your question, it's a long Mm -hmm. answer to your question. But when it came time to designing the book, I knew from the get-go, when I was physically putting the book together, that that the writing would not be interspersed with the photography. I have seen a couple of books that are able to intersperse the photography and the writing together really, really well. Um, My friend, my friend, Ben Brody did a book with the same publisher and it's brilliant the way he weaves the words and photographs together. But more often than not, I find that the words distract from the pictures, right? Like I'm, I'm going through a photo book picture. I mean, I'm in picture mode, right? I'm feeling the, the, the layering. I'm feeling the, the sequencing, and then there's like a random—not a random—but then there's like a poem thrown in, and I'm like, mm-hmm. "Oh!" Or, or there's like a mini essay, yeah. and or I'm a like, caption even. Or, that, yeah, or that's not yeah. like a long caption that yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah, and then I'm out. Yeah, yeah, so I was yeah. like, when you look at my book, you you have the option of sitting down and reading the essay mm-hmm. and then looking at the pictures, or vice versa. But you don't have—you can do
0: mm-hmm.
2: one or the other. Right. And the story of Kamaran is. Thematically layered into the story of Kurdistan, mm-hmm. so they do they do interweave
1: thematically, right. and physically, and I'm certainly, I imagine, emotionally at the core, and, mm-hmm. and the rest wrapped around his story. Right? Totally. I mean, and another thing I'm thinking as I'm looking at this this incredible image of a man on a hillside with flowers, thinking, well, I want to know the story of, of this image, but at the same time, maybe that's not what you want to do. It's not about this individual image and the story of this guy. It's about you know the the sequencing and the whole you know, the whole piece, as it were.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, like, it, it, it's hard when you, you know, in terms of a photojournalism, photo book is every, there is a story behind each picture. Right. You know, how did I get there? Who is that guy? Um, but these pictures, you know, do become, you know, emotional representative moments. Like, I mean, I could tell you the story of who that guy is and mm. how I know him and how I ended up on that hillside with the Marigolds. Um, but it would be, it would take too much time, it would be too distracting to tell each story right. of each picture yeah, in that, right, right. In that and depth. The, and
1: the part versus the whole, you mm-hmm. know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's just, I mean, this is, I don't, you know, not to oversimplify, but just the pure documentary nature of some of the book. With some incredibly beautiful images mixed yeah. in, beautiful. I mean, this yeah, one the here, the, yeah. the, the old man and the girl. There's a simplicity on the to a
0: lot of them, and the, composition.
1: And, and the real life is just. Uh, and now, there's also several photos like this where you're a photo of another photo, right. uh, and there is some information. In this case, it's Cameron, right? So
2: no, uh, that's actually so. So what there what there is is in the interlace throughout this story is. I mean, throughout the book are four photographs mm-hmm. of with information of where they were born and where they died, of four men. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is a family that I met in 2016, and the family of eight or nine brothers, four of whom were either killed or disappeared during Kurdish wars. Mm. So the first brother, Safin, uh, died in 1987 fighting Saddam. The second brother, um, Hashem, he was kidnapped and disappeared in 1996 during the Kurdish civil war. And then the two other brothers were killed fighting ISIS. Right. So I tell their story in the introduction and then their, you know, their photographs and that story is like a secondary narrative, visual narrative that sort of goes throughout the rest of the mm-hmm. book. Okay. Um, so that's what those, those photographs are
1: great. Following from there, I'd like to ask a little bit about just the production itself of the book. Well, totally. So,
2: so that the process of making the, of making a photo book is, um, it differs from person to person. Uh, I did my photo. I did my book with Red Hook Editions, and the reason I went with them is that they have a very hands-on approach to the per, you know to the editing process, um, but they have a very hands-off approach to everything else. So it's up to you to you know how you print it, who what designer you work with. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you have to raise the money to publish it, mm-hmm. um, but then you get every book. Mm-hmm. So in the financial side, which is and it, you know, it's not the most interesting, but it's very important is I'm, I don't lose money on this book. I think a lot of people who produce photography books, they do it because they love it and they accept that they're going to lose thousands mm-hmm. of dollars. Cause yeah. this is what I don't have to. And mm-hmm. I've actually, I haven't, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so I met with, with Red Hook and they accepted me, you know, you know, I met Jason and, and, uh, he's become a good friend now. And we, the process was he's like bring me bring us the the um, the publishers it was him, uh, Alan Chin, uh, Pete Van Ackmel, Glenna Gordon, and a couple other invitees. We set we made an arrangement to sit down at their offices, and I brought a stack of 500, 600 images, mm-hmm. and they just went around the table and they just initialed the pictures that stood out to them as an initial edit. We mm-hmm. went from five hundred to two hundred, and it was one of those things where as as a photographer. You become really attached to your images, especially mm-hmm. something if you've been working at it for 10 years. Um, also, I've been working as a photojournalist. So a lot of the pictures were great magazine images. And they're like, yeah, this is great. This is a great magazine image. But it's obvious. It's too pretty. It's too it's too catchy. It's it's not – your tone is, is off. Are, Maybe,
0: are you able to call these shots on your own or do you depend on an editor to do this? Because not every photographer could be this –
2: I can't. Yeah. I. I don't. I. My. In my honest opinion, I don't think there are any photojournalists or f- documentary photographers who can properly edit their own images. I'm sure there are many people who will listen to this and be like, "You're wrong." I. I can't. I. I. I have looked at my friends. who are listeners. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've worked with my friend, Watch my friends try to edit their work. They always pick the wrong images. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because we have I our was,
0: stories attached to them, and that's absolutely. the whole thing. You ever you've seen
2: got a, to divorce yourself. Have you ever from the seen story. a director's cut of a movie? Yeah. It's oh. garbage. <laughs> yeah. It's garbage. You're like, oh, that, that sequence or that shot has to be in there. Why? Because it cost a million dollars to make. Or, it, you know, I loved it. Well, it doesn't work with the whole rest of the movie. So, yeah. you know, that's Well, why actually,
0: the one editor's cut that did work was uh, Blazing Saddles, Mel Brooks, because they said <laughs> if the, he, I heard him speak, <laughs> that because if the studio had their way, the movie would have been six and a half minutes long. <laughs> and he said, no, I'm putting all that stuff in. So, no, I disagree on that one point.
1: Okay. Well, Mel Brooks gets a pass. There every, you go. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... The book got made uh, yeah. with some help from them, and, yeah. and also some very talented photographers as well. Super, yeah. yeah, 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 and yeah. and yeah.
2: and also sequencing. Like again, yeah. um, I you know Pete Van Actmael is a you know he's a brilliant photographer. He's a brilliant sequencer, and mm. he's made amazing books. And I really he he was able to look at the pictures up on the magnetic board, and he saw patterns and mm-hmm. movement that. You it's know, a I'd, composition. Yeah, it's not there, It's not right. any
0: different than putting together an LP, a group of songs, or anything like that. It's it, it has to have a rhythm and a pace to it. Absolutely. And not everybody has the ability to see that rhythm yep. and set that pace and phrasing. Yep. And absolutely. That's what it's about.
2: Yeah. And then and then you have to translate that. So you have all your sequences. Okay, so the, the images work, the nice sequence in a row, but now you've got to put it in a book. Now is every picture yeah. you know double page, spread, full bleed? which are which go small which go big All which right. play off each other which play and then and then as you turn the page that you know different relationships yeah. happen and then there's the the thing which you just have to work with as a um as a photojournalist, I try my best not to stick everything in the center of my frame, but most <laughs> things end up right in the center of my frame. So you can't do double page full bleed on everything because you lose everything in the gutter. Yeah. So then things have to move yeah, yeah. left to right. and
0: You always have to keep issues, an inch of dead space. Yeah. But what yeah. was
1: a book for the work that you were doing outside of the photojournalism while you were there, was a book, The Ultimate Goal, in the yes. back of your head somewhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I knew that Kurdistan, this region that I had, you know
2: lived in and grown to love felt very you know felt like home that it needed the time and the space because one of the things that's really important to me is is humor right i i i love to laugh i love jokes the kurds and iraqis in general but the, i cuz i learned a bit of kurdish like the kurds are hilarious they've got a really really good sense of humor and i realized that i needed to to bring that to the book If you go through this book, you'll see a lot of pain, you'll see a lot of suffering, but you're also going to see a lot of things that are funny. And I I knew sort of instinctually, I was like, if I can get a a viewer, a a reader to slow down enough to laugh, to get the humor, then the painful bits will be even more- um, Absorbable. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Digestible.
2: More poignant. Yeah, right. Thank you. Yeah. They yeah That's it'll it. be yeah. more poignant yeah. because yeah. you'll, you'll yeah, get it. It, it'll be, it'll be more human. Um, more of a contrast. But. Yeah, exactly. And like if somebody tells you a joke and you laugh, then you're on a human level that, 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 that levels the playing field that we're not so different after all. And so if you're at the not so different after all, when something bad happens to somebody, then it's like, it, you feel it, right? Like awful things are happening in Syria and Yemen right now. But if, you can just be like those that's what happens to Syrians. That's what happens to Yemen, you know, Yemenis. But if you realize they're not Syrian and Yemeni, they're just like me, my neighbor, my People. my whatever, then it hurts and it hurts. It's more poignant. And then we're we're better connected. Mm-hmm. And I think we I can do a better job connecting us through through laughter than I can through through pain.
1: We can't encourage you know anybody, more of our listeners to take a look at this book. This is a real incredible piece. Um, yeah. And I guess what I asked before about Whether a book or an exhibition or or other ways of showing the photo, it was always a book. It
2: was always a book. I I have an exhibition opening at Davidson College in North Carolina at the end of the month mm -hmm. um, of uh, about 15 images of the work. Again, because there are 73 color images in it, plus the black and white from the essay in the middle, um, that's way too much for an exhibition. So. For the entirety, it was yeah, it was always going to be a book. The other thing too that's that's important to me um, is that the book is entirely in Kurdish mm-hmm, and in English, mm-hmm. uh, and so I printed ex- hundreds of extra copies of the book so it could you know I could obviously have a lot of books I had to give away to friends mm-hmm, in Kurdistan, mm-hmm. but that I could do a massive discounted price for. You know, for people in Kurdistan, right. and it's obviously not obviously. Thankfully, it sold out in Kurdistan immediately, wow. and I've had to sell. You know, selling
1: it, but yourself or through. You there's know, a bookstore. There's, uh, book there's a bookstore
2: there that, um, oh, well, okay. who, and actually, the owner of the bookstore did the translation oh, wow. into Kurdish, That's which great. was which was That's awesome. Um, One
0: final question that I would have: that this book is out, and it's very graphic, and it's it's a powerful, powerful book in, in a lot of different levels. This is has this book jeopardized your position any in any way? I mean has it raised your profile to a point where now all of a sudden your head is sticking up above the crowd. Do you have to be more careful now?
2: That's a good question. Thankfully it hasn't at all actually. Um it is that no I mean I I, I when I was working and living in Kurdistan I was a very much a known quantity mm-hmm. there as an American guy. So whatever risks were there for me, we're, were the risks were higher when I when I lived there. Okay. Uh, in terms of my profile, no, I don't think so. I mean, there are a couple. Whenever you whenever you are an outsider and you do a book about another culture, another place, you have to be very very careful about representation. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of events in London, in DC, in New York, um, and uh, Kurdish friends and people I don't know who are who are Kurdish have come to the events, and I'm always very very I, yeah I'll be honest I was I'm nervous when I present this work in front of them because I'm I'm an outsider i'm I'm, yeah. like I'm, I'm the white guy it's yes. your flavor of it it's right. your you have vision of
0: it well respect and is key, in yeah, respect yeah, is yeah, yeah. key. Yeah. and respect is super key and yeah
2: I have had nothing but you know I've had nothing but warmth and acceptance from and thanks actually from the Kurdish people who've bought the book and have have come to the events and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I lived there for so long, and I think the other thing that comes through is I, th- I think I got it, mm. you know? I, I don't want to pat myself on the back. I'm sure there's some people who don't like it or uh, who don't like the representation. There are complicated issues. There are, for example, I'll give you a, a, an, an issue that that has had minuscule amount of controversy is that there are photographs of Christians in the book, and Christians in Iraq are not ethnic Kurds. They're a different ethnicity. This book is about Kurdistan, about the region, mm-hmm. and there's have been a couple people, Christian Iraqis, who said, that's wrong, we're not Kurds. Now, I never said they were Kurds, right. but I said the region that they're living or practicing or whatever, like mm. the picture of, of mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the family. They're within the mm-hmm. district. Within they're, the part di- of their, they're there. But they, w- they would say that that's not correct. And so I in, a, in an area of such highly defined uh ethnic groups and such deep and historical mixing it you're guaranteed to upset somebody but that level of controversy thankfully i think i have done a good enough job where it's been very very small hmm. um but it's complicated and i appreciate that i there's no way to get it right entirely hmm.
0: No, that's, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Very good point.
1: <laughs> um, You'll never satisfy everybody. No. You can't. But
2: if you do, then you probably didn't do it right, to be honest. Not like you were saying before, yes. right? You've got
1: to piss off somebody, right? <laughs> uh, what's up with photography right now, the agency, and what's your next project? Uh, Why well, do we end with those? Sure. Yeah. So,
2: so um, after Cameron was kidnapped, his younger brother, Ahmed, took over the agency um, and it's not running anymore as a photo agency that has photographers going out and taking pictures. Mm. It's become more of an advocacy for photojournalism in Iraq, mm. which needs that. So Ahmed did something which is which is remarkable. It's something that we'd always wanted to do, um, that Kamran and I had always wanted to do together, which was to bring the World Press Photo Exhibition to Iraq. Great. You know, an exhibition that has been full of pictures of Iraq, but mm-hmm. never – presented to Iraqi, to the, you know, the Iraqi population. So last year Ahmed was able to have the, the exhibition in Baghdad, Erbil and Sulaimania, and he's going to do it again this year. And I think he's going to try to take it to Mosul, which mm-hmm. would be amazing. Wow. It's a coup. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> Literally. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so he, so that's sort of what Metrographia is It's a, it's a, it's an advocacy group and it has a great name and recognition. So Ahmed's done a great job.
1: And a, a library of a li- images li- still that are... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that website is... It's uh, metrography.org. Okay.
2: Um, but really what the, w- their focus right now is sort of inside of Iraq, mm-hmm. bringing photojournalism and ethics and copyright and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. like working within Iraq to, to really... Up the game, right. uh, personally. Um, I just got back from Malaysia for a big assignment for Fortune on plastics recycling. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of I'm. I'm just doing magazine mm-hmm. work right. Not just. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm doing yeah, magazine yeah, work yeah, right yeah. now. Uh, you know, the, this book came out five months ago. Um, I and I and I had a kid ten months ago, oh, which yes. is which is thanks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and in terms of a big. Artistic project, I'm just TBD. a little bit yeah, yeah TBD. I'm a little bit drained right now. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I can yeah. I can do my photojournalism work just fine. Good for you, man. But the the next big book
1: thing, yeah. TBD. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, as life cycles go, you you know, one chapter closes mm-hmm. and you, you'll get the other one going. And in the meantime, it sounds like you're doing some pretty interesting <laughs> stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sebastian, it's fantastic talking to you today. Uh, the work you've done is amazing. The, the book is is a truly wonderful book, and we urge anybody listening to this to uh, uh, check it out. Under
1: every yard of sky.
0: Yep. And uh, where can people see your work? Websites? What, what? Where can they go? So
1: you can see the work at
2: my website, which is SebMeyer.com. Um, you can get the book on Amazon, um, but if you want to get it like about $10, $10 cheaper, you can go to my website. The, the only difference is that my um, I, you get free shipping uh. and I can't for whatever reason with the Amazon thing, I can't get free shipping there. So, uh. um, but okay. yeah.
1: All right. And uh, just for the old, uh, old-timers, is it available in any bookstores around the city yes. or other cities? It, it, you it can is. get it, it
2: at The Strand. At The Strand. The Strand. Oh, okay. And okay. The Strand has been very – I've sold tons of copies to The Strand, Great. so I love The Strand. If you are a New Yorker, mm-hmm. go support your local bookstore. 12th Street
1: and Broadway. Yeah,
2: And now soon to be on the Upper West Side. Really? My old stomping ground. I, oh,
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. A store store? Yeah, a store store. Not yeah, just a, store a little store. kiosk they used to have? Yeah, they no, used to have a kiosk in Central
2: Park. They're taking over a, uh, a bookstore on Columbus Avenue in the 80s. Okay. sounds good. Cool beans. And the name of the
0: book is Under Every Yard of Sky by Sebastian May. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. This has been awesome. Thanks so much. Cool beans. My name is Alan Weitz. And on behalf of Jason and John, bye-bye.